Hello everyone, welcome back to the show. Today my guest is Adam Finkelstein. Adam is a VSH queen breeder and he's been breeding bees since the late 80s. Together with his wife Kelly, who he met in entomology class at university, they run a business called VP Queen Bees which is based in Ivor, South Carolina, United States. Adam Finkelstein, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. Um, it's nice to, nice to talk about um, something you do all the time so, and people are interested in it. It's very flattering. Yeah. So you've been raising queens for almost 40 years. Can you tell us what first got you into it? You know, I looked, I, 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 in preparation for talking with you, I looked up when I first started with bees and I think it's close. It's not 40. It's like 30, 33. Um, okay. Yeah. But closer. Yeah. I want to be somewhat accurate. Um, and I had a, small certified organic market garden slash farm in um, uh, about two hours south of Washington, D.C. in the uh, late 80s. I was fortunate enough to have the land and I really wanted to grow um, high quality produce and grow organically and I got to be certified and this was very early on. Like we also had a CSA and I think we were the third CSA in the United States. Um, and I was lucky enough to meet the original CSA people who were very inspiring. But anyway, I had this market garden and worked my butt off and grew this beautiful produce and nobody really cared about it. Um, oh, no. I was, you know, people would say, why should I, why should I buy your produce when I can get it for half or, or even three quarters of the price at this grocery store? And this is, you know, this was way back in, in the day. Um, and so I was having a little bit of, uh, some nihilistic angst out in the garden and thinking, you know, what the heck am I doing? Why am I working so hard to make this beautiful stuff? And one restaurant in Washington, D.C. Um, offered us, you know, offered to buy everything that we produced. And that would have been great. And we were we were excited about that. But then I would have had to drive two and a half hours to Washington, D.C. twice a week to deliver the produce. And I would have ended up being a, a, a truck driver, you know, a, a teamster and, and not a uh, not a farmer. So I turned that down. So anyway, that's where I was in this nice little spot in the middle of sort of Thomas Jefferson's uh, agrarian utopia in Albemarle County where, where Monticello is. And a neighbor um, had to move and he said, hey, I have two colonies of bees and a bee suit and a book and some gloves. And, you know, I'll give them give it give them all to you for twenty dollars because, you know, I want to want them to go to a good home and I can't take them with me. And I was I thought, oh, OK, I really had never contemplated having bees or keeping bees before. So there they there they came. Um, and I started to learn about them and about honeybees and use social insects and managing honeybees and sort of the, all the intricacies of, uh, honeybee behavior and, and the way their, the colony lives. And it was really interesting and fascinating. And I had a partner on the on the organic produce farm and she used to tease me and she would, she used to say, you know, if you spent as much time on the farm as you did thinking about those bees, you would probably, we would probably be making more money. Um, than that was <laughs> kind of a joke, but that led to, um, you know, an avid 
growing interest in 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 producing bees and making honey and learning about bees and i i grabbed as many books as i could get and read them all and i had a i was lucky i had a neighbor another a different neighbor who was a commercial beekeeper he had about 800 colonies and he was uh, this was all pre-mites of course and he was making really nice honey um and he offered to show me you know i i i could go around with him and i would help him and he showed me a lot of really great stuff that uh i was very fortunate to 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 view and to learn learn from him um and that's how i started um and then there was one other key thing the the department of agriculture in the state of virginia had um had like several spots in the, their their um personnel for uh an basically it was called an agricultural inspector but mostly what you did was you inspected bee colonies um, and that was to prevent american fowl brood and since american fowl brood is so um virulently uh contagious there are some of the, some states in the united states have written into their constitution that the department of agriculture will inspect all colonies for american fowl brood and so uh, virginia was one of those states um so i i found out that there was a an opening for a bee inspector position in sort of near where i lived so i applied for that and with my educational background and um my enthusiasm i guess um i got that position and so i sort of phased out growing the market stuff and was a was a bee inspector for two years and that gave me uh, a lot of experience in and i think i, ex I explained this to some people when you're a bee inspector you want to be able to get in and out of a colony do what you need to do and not disturb the bees and not seem like you were ever there um and i i learned the, that that technique and it's really you know it helps you um manage your bees because you know you don't disturb you you're very non-invasive and that's exactly how you want to be with looking at colonies so that was that was good but that's how i started um and i went on from there and uh you know i learned 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 some other stuff and then went to graduate school and learned about entomology and and honeybees and eusocial insects and did a bunch of other worked with a bunch of other people but that was the beginning that's how i started out wow that's really interesting so in your state did they want to check every colony how often so that was this was in virginia in the 90s yeah. Um, now I would think in Virginia with the way budgets are, I think if you, they don't check every colony, um, yeah. they check commercial people. So people that are moving bees and what they'll do is they'll check, they don't check every colony. They check in a, in a yard, they'll check three to five colonies per yard. And, you know, right. you go, say a yard has 30 colonies in it. You'll start out and you'll do colony five and you'll do colony 15 and you'll do colony 20 and you'll do colony 30. Um, mm -hmm. And usually the rule of thumb with uh, commercial people is if you inspected three colonies and you didn't find anything, then, you know, that was it. The, the yard was good and you were done and you could move on to the next yard. Um, and then for other other folks that are not commercial, uh, I think the way it works now in Virginia and in other states in this in the United States is you call and you get an inspection. You ask for an inspection and they'll come and inspect you. Whereas it used to be much more, man it was mandatory. Um, and I think but it's just based on, on budget, uh, you know, hours, people, people doing, um, you know, have a, they have to do a lot of other things besides be bee inspectors with that, their position. Um, but it depends on the state. Like I think Florida is much has a much more rigorous inspection protocol just because 
there are that many more bees and there's also African bees in Florida. So inspection is, is imperative for safety. Um, and I would say probably um, like California probably has a pretty intensive select uh, inspection protocol. And then a state like um, North Dakota, where um, there's a lot of honey production and large operations, you know, running thousands and thousands of colonies, they probably, uh, the state of North Dakota probably has a fairly rigorous, um, you know, each beekeeper has to show their cert certificate of entry. And if they don't have a certificate of entry, then they would, they would get inspections, um, that kind of thing. Um, it, it's sort of the inspections depend on the level of uh, sort of intensity of the agricultural production for the state. So, so in my state here in South Carolina, where I where I live now, uh, I think I'm the, I'm the only commercial queen uh, producer in the state and there are i think there are four or five migratory people with colonies over a thousand and i rarely see the the bee inspector i mean he i, I talk to him every year but um he's he and he comes out every now and then but he pretty much we have an understanding where you know he knows we know what we're doing and he's busy doing other stuff so unless i call him and say hey i need you to come and take some samples for me um I, 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 he doesn't ever, he doesn't ever show up. So it, mm. I think it depends on where you live. Right. Interesting. So let's talk about something else. Let's talk a little bit about uh, varroa sensitive hygiene. Can you tell us what got you interested in that? Well, that's uh, a topic filled with interesting anecdotes. Um, when I was a bee inspector, um, in, I think it was 92, um, Varroa had just, uh, started to become a problem. And one of the commercial, um, beekeepers that I was inspecting had a yard that he had moved in from Florida and I went to inspect this yard and it was the first time I ever saw Varroa and I was looking at colonies and the workers had literally, they had like three and four mites on each bee in, in, oh, no. <laughs> whole yeah, it was, it was, it was bad. Um, and sad too. And I knew, I knew right away that this guy was going to lose all 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 the colonies in the yard, and probably he was going to lose all his bees. Um, and I thought, you know, if I could do something with breeding, um, it would be to focus on breeding for mite resistance. That would be a worthy thing to concentrate on. One, because it would. Uh, resolve this problem that I was seeing right in front of me. And two, it it's, would be a great challenge. And, and, you know, everybody's always up for a challenge. But um, that's when I started to get interested in, in mite resistance. And then, um, luckily enough, at the time, the Baton Rouge Bee Lab in Louisiana, uh, which is a southern state in the United States, uh, which the, the Baton Rouge Bee Lab is uh, focuses on bee breeding, um, so using hereditary uh, mechanisms and selection to improve honeybees. Um, they uh, they started to they were starting to work on mite resistance, and they had two. There was they were they were very smart. They had two sort of phases of their work. One was to find a mechanism for resistance within the United States population. So a, a sort of a, uh, an inherent innate resistance. And then the other was to find some mechanism of mite resistance that they could import or from somewhere else. And then they could, that they could then incorporate into the United States population. So VSH came out of the first, um, 
phase, which was, you know, finding uh, mechanisms within the bees themselves in the United States and breeding for those mechanisms, hereditary mechanisms. And that was the beginning of that was uh, VSH behavior. And John Harbo at the Baton Rouge Bee Lab started that with um, a bee. Oh, he was a professor, I think, at Michigan. His name was Roger, Dr. Roger Hoopengarner. And he and Harbo started working on selection for uh, VSH um, as a, a mechanism for controlling mites and mite, mite growth. And then they called it, of course, SMR, which stood for suppressed mite resistance. But that's that was the initial um, VSH uh, kickoff. And I was interested in, in, in because of, of course it was something that was absolutely in, instrumental in my goal of, of finding mite resistance. And Dr. Harbo had a policy where if you could, if you had the ability to do insemination, so you could make control your crosses, he would um, share breeding material with you. So we, uh, my, my wife, Kelly does all of our insemination and at the time she was not my wife but she was uh, you know we were partners and we um contacted dr harbo and and said you know we, we're in if you'll share some um mite resistant stuff with us and he did and we got some of those very first queens i think we got actually got one of the first ones that was really any good um and they were at the time they were actually pretty bad pretty bad but i could tell you why they were bad and a different question um and there's nothing wrong with what they were doing it just what they were selecting for um they weren't selecting for commercially viable bees they were selecting for mite resistant bees and there's a difference but uh, that's that's uh why i'm interested or you know where where my um introduction to vsh came from and then you know everything that i have and what i produce and what i work with all carries vsh um the the propensity to pass along vsh behavior and you know that's the only reason why we have we have i think we're sitting on in this yard here at home where we have about 100 colonies and none of them are treated and none of them have been treated for mites for 23 years um, so wow yeah that's really interesting that and that leads me nicely into the next question actually so um with treatment do you think the treatment should be used in association with the uh, vshbs well asking me about mite treatments is kind of a funny question because i don't know much about my treatment as I don't do it but I can extrapolate from biological uh, knowledge and sort of the answer that I would give is if you have bees that are not resistant to mites and they're going to die um, treating them is probably better than letting them die um, unless of course you are selecting for mite resistance one of the things that it's called the the bond method the live and let die method of mite resistance selection one of one of the keynotes foundational aspects of that philosophy of selection is you you have a bunch of candidates you don't treat them and if they manage to survive, they're obviously something is keeping them alive that has to do with mite resistance. So you propagate them and see what happens. So in that regard, not treating is great. And we have a, a whole selection protocol that we use in our breeding project where there are periods where there is no treatment for a specific amount of time. And then mites are counted um, measured and counted and then 
the, the, the colonies with the lowest mites with no treatment are used for the next phase. But a regular non-breeding individual who has bees should most likely, most definitely um, keep, a, keep a handle on their colony's mite level. And when the mite level gets to a specific threshold, they would then treat. And that's been a kind of a sticky question. No one has really wanted to commit to what a threshold level would be. And mites in general are very hard to nail down because the mite population changes over the season. Um, so at some levels uh, of uh, testing, uh, some colonies testing levels, the, the colonies will be really low with mites. And then at other levels, uh, other times they'll be really, they'll be, you know, they'll have a certain number of mites and it will seem like it's low, but it's actually not a, represent, a, a representation of the level of mites in the colony. So I think what people say um, who, who deal with treatments um, and, and extension people that I've heard is that you monitor your you monitor your bees and you should monitor them two or three times a year. Um, monitor them in the spring, monitor them after the honey flow and monitor them as the bees are winding down in the fall. And at any point in time, if there are, you're, you're finding, um, you know, five or six to 10 mites uh, per hundred bees. And there are various ways you can do that test. Um, but if you're finding that level, then you might, you should, you should probably treat them. Um, and, and another thing that I've heard is that people mix up the treatment. So one year they'll use one treatment and another year they'll use a different treatment and that works pretty well. So, right. And so with VSH, um, is it possible to have hives that never have mites ever? Um, I don't know. That's a good question. I think that's um, probably, it's probably not realistic just because of the way mites work and the way bees work. Um, and, in, and in fact, if I'm looking at a hypothetical group of colonies and I test them for a mite level and I'm finding zero, 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 zero mites per hundred bees. I'm concerned that my tests are off or something's going on because that's just not what you find. Usually, usually you're, usually you find, you'll find one mite per hundred bees. You'll find five mites per hundred bees. You'll find eight mites per hundred bees. You'll find a lot of two and three mites per hundred bees. Um, but not having any mites, um, you know, we, we have a bunch of colonies that test zero too. So it's zero mites per hundred bees, but, um, so, and then over the course of the season, they're, they're zero and zero, but it's just there, the mites are going to be there. Um, they're, they, they're very well suited to, and they are, they're, they have a adaptational, you know, uh, a niche within the eusocial colony of bees. Um, so if they can figure out a way to live within the bee colony and not kill the bees, they're going to be there. And I don't think that's, I don't think having mites is a, a low level of mites is very bad. I think that when you have a, you know, when the mite level gets to be extremely high, that's when there are issues. But I think the concept of zero mites, um, is not really a biological way to think about things. And look, you're dealing with, one is dealing with an animal. You're dealing with a natural, you know, in the wild part of nature that's, that's multicellular and has all kinds of fascinating and intricate functions. It's not, it, it's not perfect. It's not going to fit your concept of, this is a great colony because it has no mites. I mean, that's in a way sort of uh, not realistic. And what happens with people and bees, and I've seen this and it's, I, I kind of make, make, not make fun of it, but I have a good time with it. Um, 
bees are bees and they'll do they're going to do their their honeybee um they're going to live their honeybee lives and we're mammals and you know we're humans and we live our human lives and we have certain expectations of our bees that <laughs> very often are not realistic um you know the classic thing i love when people say well you know started out a colony and it grew but it only grew from the middle of the hive to one side like it didn't fill in the frames of the other side and i had to move the frames around and do everything and all this and i always think to myself i got a bunch of colonies that do that they 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 pick one side and they go up vertically on one side we call them sidewinders and you know i don't know why they do that but i'm not gonna worry about their symmetry whether they're you know gonna fill both sides of the box up you know if they're gonna fill one side of the box up and they're doing well and they're healthy then so be it so my sort of point with the zero might or my response to the zero might question is um i don't know i'm sure there's some colonies that have zero mites but i don't think having a few mites is bad mm -hmm. okay so Based on photos I've seen of your bees, it looks as though you use exclusively YSP 10 frames with no excluders. Why have you chosen this setup for breeding your queens? I think that's a hilarious question because it really has nothing to do with breeding bees. <laughs> okay. But I'll answer it. <laughs> um, whatever the term you're using for the box size is new to me. I've not heard that. That sounds like a uh an australian term we the united states calls it a medium or illinois depth um it's six and a quarter i think is the frame size and i use those because they're pretty much all purpose um i use them for brood i use them for honey if, if if bees need to put honey somewhere um they'll use those frames and i use one box and that way i only need to buy one kind of box one kind of frame and everything is the same um and that's a decision i made a long time ago and it's i'm very happy i made it i i have my nukes have those same frames and i make my nukes out of those same boxes and divide them into doubles um but that's what we that's what we standardized on and that's what works um i'm not a honey producer you know i'm not worrying about making lots and lots of honey my bees do make a lot of honey and in fact at times it gets in the way because i really need those frames to be empty so i can get brood in them and not have them full of honey i don't have an extractor i decided to get rid of an get get rid of an extractor years ago just because it was in the way but um that's what we use that's that's a good it's it's not a shallow and it's not a deep it's a in between frame and it works pretty well for all purposes um i usually going into the winter i'll have the bees in or the bees will be in the two boxes and then there'll be a solid box of honey above those two boxes and then by february the bees will have moved up into the second and top box and the bottom box is completely empty and you just then take the bottom box away or else you flip the bottom box up onto the top and that gives them something to move into um, and that's that's how we've done it for a really long time um queen excluders um sometimes i use them sometimes i don't i use them to exclude queens like if i'm trying to make something queenless or if um, i don't know where a queen is in a colony where i need to have uh queenlessness i'll throw a queen excluder in there but i don't necessarily use them for honey production or or you know not honey production um it's just more of a queen excluder is more of a, a exactly that it's just for excluding the queen to find out where the queen is if i was making honey um 
I probably would use queen excluders because they keep the brood nest segregated from the um, where the honey is stored, and it's a big waste of time if you have one of those one in forty queens that likes to go up and lay lay a brood in the honey area. You've got to separate all that stuff out, and it takes a lot of wastes a lot of time. So, uh, queen excluder. Uh, I would use them if I was a honey producer. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you offer breeders in Italian, Carniolan, and uh, Poline 2.2. Can you tell us a little bit about these strains? Sure. First of all, almost everything that's used to describe strains of bees is ancient history. Um, genomically, so if you look at the the base sequence of the mitochondrial DNA in bees, um, there are certainly Italian, quote unquote, carniolan, quote unquote, and whatever. Uh, the, another good one is Apis mellifera mellifera, which is the English bee. Uh, there are there are markers that show that bees come from those matrilines. But the way we have grown agriculturally, um, almost all the unique traits that segregated those strains back in the late part of the 19th century and the early part of the 20th century, that stuff has all been mixed up and mixed together. So, for example, you know, people say they want an Italian queen, um, I assume that means they want a queen that's very um, productive, lays a lot of brood, turns most of the nectar that comes in into brood, makes draws out comb really well, is gentle, and is very uh, fecund, you know, will, will make, make a lot of brood and also a lot of honey. Whereas if, if someone asks me for a carniolan, I'm thinking they're going to want a bee that is somewhat more frugal with how they um, use their incoming resources. They tend to put a lot of the resources away, store it, and they wrap the brood nest in it. And they tend to not lay as much brood um, unless the weather is really good. And then when they do uh, go to town and really start to bring it in, they really bring it in all at once all of a sudden and that's you know those are the classic traits of carniole and mountain bees that were selected over the years by various generations of beekeepers um, because those bees you know you didn't want them to start up early because it would possibly get cold so you wanted them to wait and sit in their their hives or skeps or whatever they were being contained in until the weather broke and then you wanted them to take off whereas the italian bees were kept in an area that had a much milder winter so having them be more productive more quickly and in a, in a, in a way more sensitively based on what was coming in was better for that warmer sort of more forgiving climate so now when i have on my website italian carniolan and pollen 2.2, I can tell you that the carniolans are from stock we have that we select for the carniolan traits. And every now and then I will get some genetic material semen from uh, one of the, probably the only person in the North America that really has a good curative, I guess if she would be a curator of the germplasm for carniolan, I'll get some stuff from her and make some crosses and see how they do and then possibly select those in back into what I've already got. I do that every four or five years. Um, the Italians are basically what I have as Italian, quote unquote, is the stuff that I have that's mite resistant, that is light in color, makes a lot of brood, is really, you know, has a sunny disposition and is very optimistic. Um, that's what I call my Italian, um, but it's usually 
hallmark is it's light and broody. And the Pauline 2.2 is pretty much our, our breed that we've come up with and worked on for a long time. And it's just consistently productive, makes a lot of brood, is gentle, is mite resistant, and is, you know, pleasant to work. Um, you know, doesn't isn't runny, but at the same time, you know, doesn't sit around either. It's, you know, just a good all-purpose, all-around be that a hobbyist could use and a commercial person, a commercial operator would also be happy with. So that's how I sort of would describe the strains. Um, you know, I'll, I'll have people tell me that they have Italian bees or they have Carniolan bees, or I have even, even have some people tell me they have Pauline 2.2 bees and I never did business with them. And I always think that's kind of funny <laughs> because it's like, oh, really? That's great. Um, <laughs> so how long have you been offering that line, the Pole Line 2.2? Uh, since I think 2015 or 16, that's when we, we started that project after the USDA finished their sort of a demonstration project of taking VSH queens and producing cells from those queens and then mating those cells in a commercial apiaries drone cloud. And the concept there was VSH and mite resistance and even back to the, the, the early SMR stuff, that stuff was selected to be mite resistant and it was very mite resistant, but it was not selected to be productive or to produce honey or to make good brood or to pull out comb uniformly or to be gentle. So the idea was, okay, we've got this mechanism for mite resistance. Let's now take the mechanism for mite resistance and let's try to breed with that and impart that mite resistant ability into commercial bees that are good with everything else. So that was what the Pauline, basically in summary, that's what the Pauline project that the USDA ran from, I think, 2008 or nine up until 2013, 14. That's what they did. And we just, we went to the, we went to them and had a meeting and talked with all the scientists and some of the cooperators and we offered to continue doing that kind of selection because we thought it's we think it's a good selection method and they were they were all for it and supported us and so that's where the we we named it 2.2 just so that we could discern that it was not the usda's work but someone else's effort um not to make things confusing as i know names of bees tend to get crazy and confusing you know there are so many different you can buy this you can buy that and it's hard to tell what is what but Pauline 2.2 is just we're taking um, candidates that have been screened for production you know that are good candidates and then we don't treat them for a period of time and then after that period of time we count the number of phoretic so the number of mites on the bees within the colony and the ones that pass all the tests that are productive and that have low mite counts we then use those as as colonies that will cross with other good colonies and it's very simple uh, it just is a lot of legwork and a lot it takes a lot of time and effort because you have to test test a lot of colonies but it, there's no it's not rocket science it's not any fancy stuff in a lab it's just good old-fashioned animal husbandry and it works really well um you know we our results show that and we're happy with them and our customers are too mm -hmm. excellent so you're maintaining these lines through artificial insemination and are you still offering um, classes on this at the moment we yeah we do um we we had pretty much had a fairly regular class for multiple people set up in June every year. And when COVID hit, that, that ended that. Um, and then after a couple of years, we started to get people 
we, we were giving more like more private one-on-one, you know, someone would come for, and they would visit us for two days and get trained. Um, but I, I think we could certainly ramp back up into having multiple people here for two days. It's nice to have more than one person because then the students can talk amongst themselves and share their experiences and their percep- their perceptions. And I think it's a more enriched environment than a, than just a single person. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So can you recommend any books on queen breeding? Okay. So let me ask you a question with that question. Are you talking about queen rearing or are you talking about queen breeding? Because they're, they're two very different things. I think queen rearing, there's, there's quite a bit of information out there. I, I really want to know the queen breeding side of it. Are there any books that you would recommend uh, for helping a queen breeder? Okay. Um, I can give you a couple books. The, the unfortunate truth is that breeding in, in the, the art and science of artificial selection um, under, the, under the category of biology and agriculture is not an exact science. Um, there's certainly um, has been a huge move forward with a lot of breeding in agriculture for animals that, um, you know, are high dollar, I mean, like dairy and meat and uh, wool and, you know, all the fancy um, sort of mainstream cash uh, crops. Uh, Unfortunately, with bees, everybody who is a beekeeper learns this sooner or later where the bee people the the apicultural aficionados are always at the bottom of the chain um with everything um you know you can't you can count you know hundreds of commercials that mention save the bees or for your bees and this bee and that bee but they're not those those at those people that are making money from the commercials are certainly not contributing to um, anything to do with apiculture. There's so much basic research in apiculture that would be helpful to have conducted, and yet it's not. Like, you know, physio- virgin queen physiology or vir- virgin queen behavior. Like, nobody knows anything about that or, you know, artificial insemination stuff. I mean, we see things when we do an artificial insemination that no one no one talks about in research um just because no one's done it and it's not you can't just pick up and do research you know you have to be in a research program so anyway with that slight rant um i will say that one of the most valuable books for heredity in an in an apicultural application so learning about basic Mendelian inheritance with bees is Brother, Brother Adam's Beekeeping at Buckfast Abbey because Brother Adam explains how he used Mendelian genetics and his selection for producing the Buckfast bee. And that's basically, you know, it's really interesting and he's uh, just... He's, it's great to read Brother Adam stuff because, you know, it's, he's a monk and, you know, he's talking about stuff that he really knows a lot about because that's all he does. Um, and so it's it's very it's very satisfying. I find reading Bro- Brother Adam very satisfying because he is truly an expert or was truly an expert. Um, but that's Mendelian genetics. And what happens with breeding and genetics is people learn a little bit about Mendelian genetics, which is sort of the simplest, oversimplified version of heredity, and then they think that every aspect of heredity has is based on Mendelian genetics. Mendelian genetics, the example is dominance and recessive. Blue eyes, the the heredity of blue eyes and brown eyes in humans. So, you know, um, if you have blue eyes, you're going to have a recessive genotype 
which is for for blue eyes. If you have brown eyes, you could either, you could have a um, dominant genotype, which is all brown, or you could have a heterozygous, half brown, half blue. But the brown overrules the blue, so you're going to have brown eyes. That sort of relationship. That's all Mendelian stuff. Um, but beekeeping at Buckfast Abbey uh, covers all of that. There's a second book that he wrote, which is called, I think it's Breeding the Buckfast Bee. Um, but don't. Hmm. Bre- Breeding the Honey Bee, it's called. Breeding the Honey Bee. That Interesting book, coincidence. That, that same, same name of this podcast, actually. <laughs> yeah. It's a great, yeah. a great book. Yeah. That book is, that is a good book. I find that there's actually more actual applicable bee breeding information in the first book than in the second book. Um, but they're both good books. There's another book. Let me grab it so I can give you the exact title. Hang on a second. All right. This is a probably the best all-around um, bee breeding book. And it was, I think it was out of print for a while, but I, I'm pretty sure it's back in. It's by Friedrich Rutner. He was a German apicultural expert, uh, entomology professor. And the title is Breeding Techniques and Selection for Breeding the Honeybee. And it is by, by him, it was translated by um, Ashley and Eric Milner, and it was published. I don't know if it's still published by them, but the copy I have was published by the British Isles Bee Breeders Association. Um, and that this is a really good um, sort of. Uh, I would say it's probably it gives you both queen rearing in the context of breeding and then also some selection and some pretty pretty um serious foundational concepts when one is breeding and i i heartily recommend this book sadly a lot of the references in this book are to breeding carniolan bees and i think that a lot of the stuff is old it doesn't exist anymore you know the the breeders that are referenced or have passed on. And I don't know if a lot of this stuff is actually current, but all, certainly the, the information that this book gives is um, very good. And then the, probably the, the most helpful thing with breeding in bees, but breeding in anything is to, to look up, um, a basic college genetics uh, textbook and that's handy because you can learn a lot of sort of the mechanics of heredity and then you ha- you understand that and then with that you can um, sort of apply that back to, to breeding any animal and of course then honeybees are in there but what's hard about breeding honeybees is there the bees are haplodiploid so there isn't really a male and female bee you know it's all female it's just the drones the male expression of the organism still has the genotype of the the queen that the drone is from um so there isn't it's not really there's not really sexual reproduction in the sense of two different parents um it's pretty much all from uh one side and that makes for some fuzzy and sticky um issues when breeding Um, and the classic one is that if you become too homozygous so if you if if what you're breeding becomes too similar you can have this devastating crash of vigor in your stock and it's very frustrating because when you breed when one breeds one is 
taking the chaos away and making things ordered and focused. That's what selection is. You're, you're picking what is good and you're throwing away everything else. And what happens when you do that with bees is you're, you're getting what you, you're, you're heading closer to the ideal, but you're also getting dangerously close to becoming ruinously homogenous and losing everything you have. So there's, we always say, you know, it's like three steps forward and two steps back when you're, when you're breeding with bees, you know, you get what you, you get close to what you want and then you've got to keep that on the side and then you've got to have something else going so that you're not going to get too focused into one thing. Um, and that can happen very fast, especially with artificial insemination. If you don't have enough diversity, you can end up with everything being very genetically similar and you know you'll have half a brood pattern let me give you an example um, of this so the the two places that i get some of my genetic material in the ter in terms of queens so the candidates that i use for my breeding colonies are there are two operations commercial operations one has 11, around 11,000 colonies, and the other has around 35,000 colonies. And I work with both of those guys. Well, I have the luxury of having a pool of that size. So I'm already way ahead in terms of breeding than a lot of people just because I have the ability to have that large sort of chance of getting something good. If you take those numbers, 11,000 and 35,000, and you look the other way, and you look at someone who's breeding their breeding bees, and they've got, say, 500 colonies. I mean, there's a, it's almost an, not an order of magnitude, but it's a very large difference between 500 colonies and, you know, 46,000 colonies. Um, and that's what happens to a lot of people and they get discouraged is that they they breed their bees and they make their crosses and they keep really good records and they do all this stuff and it doesn't really matter because they're just getting too homogenous too quickly and they don't have a way to bring in new stuff that's also really good so the answer to that and a lot of people don't like the answer because it's something that humans are allergic to is <laughs> i'm being a little cynical here is cooperation you know the best way to breed good bees is to work with a bunch of people um to have a group to have a consortium to have a club to have an association and you know everybody figures out what they want and what the common goals of the group are and then instead of one person having to shoulder the population in the selection, it can be distributed over a bunch of people and even a bunch of geographies, and that would be even better. And that way you have, you're fighting against the homogeneity that is your enemy as a bee breeder. But that also involves, you know, someone who, or a manager or uh, several managers and, and you know, communication and time and all that good stuff that is the enemy of, of anything that requires excellence is, you know, you have to, you have to give up something to get excellence. And with bee breeding, I, I love when I have a customer and I have their queen ready and I say, I send them an email. I usually, a lot of my communication is through email. It's just faster. Um, I send them an email and I say, your, your breeders went ready or your breeders are ready and I could ship them next week. You know, they can arrive Tuesday, Wednesday or Thursday. And I'll get an email back from people and they'll say, oh, well, I'm going on vacation or I've got this thing at work or blah, 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 blah. And can you can we work at a different time? And I always think, OK, this person is not a breeder because they're not prioritizing the breeding material to be the number one thing on their plate and unfortunately since breeding takes so long and it's so involved and requires so much attention to detail you have to put it up front and uh you know 
I wish it could be, I wish it could be easier. I wish, you know, it would be a simpler process, but to really. Yeah, and the timings, you know, the timings, exactly. the, you have to stick to them. They're their number one priority. It's, it's tough, isn't it? Yeah. So it's, you know, that's, that's uh, sort of with these books, that's the, the sort of the wrapping that all together. I mean, the, all the people say the same thing, you know, you want to make sure you're seeing exactly what is there you know like the classic thing is oh i have these really two really good colonies and they're in this one bee yard and one colony is at one side of the bee yard and the other colony is at the other side of the bee yard and then you say oh and you have all the bees are in in a stand all in a, in a straight line right and they say yeah and of course that's because the <laughs> all the all the bees have drifted down to the two end colonies. So that's why they're so good. Um, <laughs> and that's, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to make a good selection that way. You're going to just pick the, the ones that are, you know, inflated artificially. So you have to, you know, you have to make sure you're how you're selecting and what you're gauging with is accurate and not just mm -hmm. a, sort of a, what you want to see. A lot of times, also, too, with culling, with getting rid of your your undesirable candidates, you have to kill them, or you have to give them away, or you have to take them out of your breeding program. Um, and I know people, I just, and I, I do it too. It's like you'll say you'll have a queen, and you just like the queen, and she's not very good. You know she's not worthy, but you don't want to make her go away. So, what do you do? Oh, I have this nice queen. Yeah. Well, if you're really if you're a really good breeder, you get her so that she's not making any drones in an area where you're mating, or you give her to a friend, or you know, donate her to something, something like that. But you got to get rid of anything that's not worthy, and you've got to find what's worthy, and that's a constant cycle. Well, that's really good advice, Adam. Also, really like the advice about collaboration. I think that's a very important one. So, thanks for that. Sure. I think we'll, uh, we'll, I'm aware of your time and, and thanks, thanks so much. So can you tell us uh, where we can find you, um, website, social media, and then we'll, we'll end it there and, and you can get back to your busy day. Okay. Um, again, thank you for being interested. Um, and you all in Australia are going to have some fun with Varroa. Uh, just, just realize that it can be done. You can select for bees that are pretty darn resistant, um, but it's a whole different way to manage bees or, you know, you manage bees differently and there's more testing and it's less fun. Um, but the naysayers who will say that, you know, you can't, bees don't have resistance to Varroa, that's just baloney. Um, they, they certainly do. Um, there, there are plenty of resistant bees out there. Um, it just it, requ it requ requires work to get get to them um, or get them. We're on the we have our website vpqueenbees.com um, and that kind of lists what we do in a sort of a uh, you know abbreviated form and it has our contact information and um, I don't really um, I'm not on much social media every now and then i'll i'll put something on b source because that was the old old um sort of original forum for b b people way back when um mm -hmm. so still very good reference yeah i'll i'll sometimes post some stuff on there but um you know if, if anybody has a question they can certainly send me an email um and it just sometimes it takes a while when we're when we're really busy it takes a while to get back sometimes i write people back two months later and then i never hear from them and i think oh they're they they're they don't want to talk to me i took too long <laughs> but <laughs> they solved the problem <laughs> yeah but you know you know when you're when you're um, yeah i know what it's like start making, of spring very busy making the orders and stuff it's you know you don't mm. have enough time in the day um but that's yeah we're we're out and around and if you're anybody is ever in uh in the United States and they want to 
you know, they feel like having a visit, you know, just get a hold of us. We're, we're pretty accommodating. We just have to schedule it so we can, you know, have enough time. That's the main thing with us is just putting it on the schedule. Once it's on the schedule, it's no big deal. So excellent. Well, thanks so much for being uh, on the show today, Adam. You're welcome. I appreciate you. Okay, well, I hope you enjoyed that episode, having a chat with Adam. Really interesting stories, really interesting information. How, how interesting is it that he doesn't own an extractor? He's solely queen breeding and he doesn't, doesn't extract honey at all. Also, he hasn't treated for 23 years. So it, it goes to show that it is possible to, to live with Varroa and, and not have it affect your bees too badly. Very, very interesting. I really like the point that he made about collaboration. That was, that was fantastic. If you want to get in touch with Adam, you can by going to his website at vpqueenbees.com. If you want to get in touch with me, you can at nixonbees.com.au. And until next time, thanks so much for tuning in.